So, gentlemen, huge news over the last few weeks. Our friend, I think we can call him a friend, uh, Reggie Fuzume is retiring from Nintendo. Um, so this was put out, there was like a big heartfelt message that Nintendo tweeted out. They tweeted out like a video, uh, kind of came out of nowhere. But Reggie announced that he's going to be retiring in April. Um, the perfectly named, we spoke about him before, but Doug Bowser uh, is going to be taking over from Fizume. Uh Doug Bowser was brought in and has been the president of sales and marketing for Nintendo of America since May of 2015. Um, of course, Reggie has been the president of Nintendo of America. That's been his role for many years. And we're going to talk about his kind of history in the company in a little bit. Um, but Bowser's claim to fame, other than his wonderful name, is that he was kind of in charge of the team responsible for the Nintendo Switch's marketing campaign. So it is no surprise that he's going to be taking over from fils right? Like the guy's got a pretty impressive resume in Nintendo so far. Yeah, and it's got he's got the perfect name. He's got an impressive resume. I'm still I'm sad, of course, that Reggie's mm-hmm. leaving, uh, just because it feels like it's another part of my childhood that's going away. You know, it's yep. kind of weird to associate that with um, it's an executive for a <laughs> multi-billion-dollar corporation. Why would you get emotional about an executive? Leaving? Executives still, are more these days, right? Like they mean more to us than the jobs that they hold, and because. I think you know, so. It, it, especially in Reggie's case, the type of person who was very involved, uh, was very like put himself out there, was like a fan favorite for good reason. You know, he very frequently was memeable, make fun of himself, would put himself in these great situations. And even in this video, they're showing a lot of these kinds of clips of him being in different Nintendo Directs, and he's referencing it. Um, like obviously, uh, Fusume speaks very fondly of his time at Nintendo. Um, and he did state that his retirement is purely to be able to spend more time with his family and friends. I mean, he's had a long, successful career. Um, I'm sure by this point he has, you know, he's sitting on a nest egg and he doesn't probably doesn't need to work now. You know, like he has been a very important figure at Nintendo through two massive boons in the company's history, you know? So I'm sure that he is set up financially at this point and it's just a case of him feeling probably like he's done all he needed to do you know like he's leaving on a high with the switch um so you know i'm I'm sure this is like a perfect time for him to be able to wrap his career up um he also spoke about stating that he is a nintendo fan as well and he is looking forward to being that in the future Um, i would say this is a shock shahid is a shock to you no because i've seen this happen with so many executives okay it's always good to be able to choose your time. And I'm wondering if he did think, this is the right time. I don't really want to see through another product cycle. I've helped to bring this enormous company, as you, as you said earlier, Federico, you know, talking about liking a guy who happens to represent a, a corporation. But, you know, I want to go back to that point. It's really interesting because these people are, are a lot more than just corporate leaders now. Right, they are mm-hmm. symbols. They are yeah. symbols of something that you have strong uh, childhood and teenage attachment to, and that's. I, I think that's something that's true much more for video games, slightly less so for movies, and even less so for music. I'd love to know why that is. 
I have no idea why it feels that way to me. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like some of these industry executives who've been around forever and who've seen boom and bust and helped to create the industry that we all know and love, how they're seen as symbols of those things that we love so much, just as much as the people who made the games. I think it's because in like that sliding scale that you mentioned is the access that we have to the artists themselves. Like we have way more of a connection in modern culture to the people making the movies and the people making the music because we see them, they're front and center. We don't really see the game developers very much. And and this is probably because, you know, especially when comparing to music, the actual production is spread out amongst many more people. So really, we only have figureheads to attach to, and they tend to become in the form of executives. I mean, I would say that, like, for video game companies, technology companies are the same, you know? Like, CEOs of tech companies and video game companies are pretty similar in that, like, we attach to these executives, not necessarily so much to the people doing the work. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, if you look at Apple, how many of their product designers have made it out front and center apart from Johnny Ive? Barely any. Barely any, right? And even when they bring people out that aren't the executives you're used to, they're typically just other like vice presidents or whatever of different product teams, right? Like they are yeah. the managers. Um, and I understand why that is from a kind of communications perspective and like a prestige perspective within the company, but it does make a difference, right? It's like, I don't know who the executives are of the different music labels. I don't know who they are, right? But I, I know the other end. I know the musicians, but I don't know who mm -hmm. the chief exec is at like Sony, right? Like f who looks after the music. Like I don't know who <laughs> yeah, that is. You, you don't have a poster of a, <laughs> a record label executive. I bedroom. don't actually. I, mean, I don't. But like in the same way that I don't have posters of uh, iOS app developers who work at Apple because I don't know who they are. Yeah. Because the company makes it that way. But Reggie has really been like a figurehead for Nintendo is definitely a fan favorite, right? Like, and you can see that in the reaction that people had when the news was announced. Um, our, our good friend, John Voorhees, who hosts App Stories with Federico, he played a clip to me <laughs> that he, he pulled out of when you two were recording and you found out the news. And uh, you were like, I have to take a break. Oh, really? It did yeah. this? Okay, mm -hmm. interesting. <laughs> um, so he played Sneaky that for John. me when I was with him a few days ago, uh, where you're like, Oh my, like, well, I actually can't repeat the exact words that you said, but you were like, <laughs> Reggie is retiring from Nintendo. I have to take a break. And the break was probably to text me, which I assume yes. is the way that that went down. <laughs> but I felt that way too. I was really emotional. Like I was, I was super sad about it. Like I, like you, Federico, I've, I've grown up with this guy, you know, and, and mm -hmm. in some respects, and he has been an important figure in a thing that I hold dear to me, which is not just video games, but Nintendo, you know? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that you're. It's it's weird to say, but you feel uh, safe knowing that it's a fixed entity. It's something that you know. It's somebody that you know is working and making things at the company that you know. And when it changes, like it's like when a celebrity dies, but it's not as tragic, of course, in this case. But it's it's something that well, you know. It's a known quantity of the world that you know that is going away. It, you mentioned about the dying thing and, and like it is worth mentioning like what we're doing today and what I've seen many articles, it, they're almost like obituaries. 
Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Right? They are. I mean, this happens a lot, right? You know, like when a band splits up or uh, an actor retires, there is like the first wave of obituaries. So like looking back on somebody's life and time doing their thing, right? Like, and this is kind of what this is like today because we're talking about him. We're talking about being upset and we're going to talk about his history and his impact on the industry. Like it's a similar kind of thing because it is the withdrawing from the public eye. So they're gone from your typical view, which is almost like this weird death in a way it's like such a strange thing to say but it is the end of the figurehead they are gone that time is over um and it it, it makes it quite a weird thing like you read you know like there's an article uh on kotaku and like it's titled how reggie fusume became a nintendo legend like yeah. that could quite have easily have been published if he had died uh luckily yeah. he hasn't and he does seem to be in good health which makes me happy um but it it is this kind of this kind of very strange thing. Uh, before we do go on to talking about kind of Reggie's career, I I will say I do hope that they find a way to get him in one more direct, just one more. You know. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, but um, I don't know if Nintendo likes to do this kind of uh, like blast celebration. It would be lovely. It would be perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's too bad. It's too bad that we didn't get to have one with uh, Iwata. Unfortunately. Yes. I think we should be getting what we Reggie. One last, you know, one last direct, it one just, last video. One cameo one last meme. at E3, yeah. right? One little cameo in the E3 video would just be a real, like, crowd-pleasing, heartwarming moment, right? But but if we don't, Some, I also understand why, and I think that they did a really wonderful job with his kind of farewell video um, in his beautiful style. Like, Reggie has this way of, like, almost like a kid's TV presenter in the way that he talks, you yeah. know? He's very yeah. calming, and he makes you feel happy, you know, and he explains things. Makes you feel safe. Nice. I makes feel you, safe yeah. when I watch Reg. <laughs> Let's just move straight on from this line of thinking, uh, and we'll we'll take a break. Thank our first sponsor, and then Federico, you can you can tell us about the the history of the career of uh, Reggie yes. Fusume. So today's episode is brought to you in part by ExpressVPN. We can all hold our hands up and admit that we think that cybercrime just happens to other people. Because who would want your information? Well, the unfortunate thing is, stealing from people, regular people like me and you, over public Wi-Fi networks is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. If your internet connection is unencrypted, your passwords and your credit card numbers could be vulnerable. But there's something that you can do to protect yourself from this kind of stuff. You can start using ExpressVPN. It works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing, encrypting your data, and hiding your public IP address with easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of all your devices. You can turn on ExpressVPN protection in just one click, and you're free to safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having your personal data stolen. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. When I travel, I'm able to just quickly turn it on. I can turn it on in iOS settings. I can turn it on in the app. On the Mac, they have a little menu bar app. Super easy to turn on. You can have it very quickly uh, just take a look at what they call the smart location. So what's like the closest location to you to make sure that your internet connection is still going to be running super fast. I'm a big fan of ExpressVPN. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep the bad guys away from your data, you need ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com slash remaster to learn more and protect your online activity today. 
To find out how you can get three months free, just go to expressvpn.com slash remaster. That's expressvpn.com. That's expressvpn.com slash remaster for three months free of a one-year package. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show and Relay FM. So the first thing I want to say is that I've been doing some research, of course, about his life and yeah. career. And the, the very first thing I want to mention is that from an interview from 2003, he said that his retirement dream is opening a scuba diving shop on a beach. So we can all keep an eye out for that, right? So if you want to find Reggie, uh, you know, <laughs> just, <laughs> you know where to go. Just try and find the scuba diving shop. Uh, he lives in Seattle, so... Uh, you know, I don't know where if it's going somewhere else. He could go to Hawaii. He... It's not too far from Seattle. Yeah. So there you go. That's uh, where you can find Reggie. So we all know in the Nintendo community, we all know Reggie from his first very public and very um, uh, well-known appearance at E3 2004. Before that, uh, Reggie comes from, uh, I suppose, um, an interesting background. Uh, he, uh, you know. Among the various jobs that he had before Nintendo, he worked at Pizza Hut and the VH1 cable channel in the United States. I think the VH1 used to be uh, something that spun off from MTV. Yes. Um, um, so what he did there, both at Pizza Hut and VH1, uh, at Pizza Hut, he launched um, the as a marketing uh, director. He launched. He contributed. He contributed to the launch of the Bigfoot Pizza. Um, and before you make fun of this, the idea was to, and this is something that actually um, came up multiple times in Reggie's career, uh, trying new and different things for different demographics, not just for the core uh, for the core audience of a company, but for different a uh, different age segments, and trying new different ideas and see if they could actually work. And he also did the same for VH1, whereas, you know, the company was saying you should focus on the demographic between, you know, 20 and 30 years old, but he actually tried to get different types of people on board. Mm -hmm. And the theory goes that it's this kind of determination and sort of creative approach to try and, uh, and expand, you know, the audience and the market to different segments that got him the job at Nintendo. Because Nintendo at the time, they were going through a bit of a rough patch, to say the least, in the sense that the GameCube was not selling well. Now, most people tend to remember that Nintendo was losing money. Nintendo was never losing money, even in the GameCube era, even if the GameCube was not, you know... <laughs> a proper uh, response to the PlayStation 2 or the Xbox. Um, but they had, you know, they had a few billion, billion dollars, I think $6 billion in cash in the bank, and they were making money off of each GameCube sold. So it was not a, you know, Nintendo was not doing good in the public eye and in terms of public perception, but they were not, you know, doomed or on the, on the edge of a catastrophe, financially speaking, but they were losing credibility in terms of, well, you know, all of us in the video game industry, we are going Hollywood. We are going with realistic video games and it's all about GTA and crime and adult type of, you know, themes, um, mature content, and we want to have realistic cutscenes. And Nintendo is here doing Luigi's Mansion and Pikmin, essentially. So they were 
they were sort of losing the uh, the the losing in the common perception of Nintendo is just a kids' company now, but video games are going to be the new movies. Um, and also coming into E3 2004, and I remember this because I I was actively following all of the news on you know back in the very first days of the internet for me, but I was also reading on magazines at the time. Uh, E3 2003 was boring. Uh, like the, I think the main event from Nintendo was the demo of Pac-Man Versus uh, featuring Shigeru Miyamoto. Uh, Pac-Man Versus was like, you could play on the GameCube, but also your friends could control Pac-Man and uh, what's the name of the Pinky and Slinky, you know, the ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, they could control those on the GBA, so you could connect a Game Boy Advance to the GameCube. And that was one boring demo, let me tell you. Um, and the the executives on stage, I mean Iwata could you know barely speak English. Uh, the other the other guy from Nintendo America, I think his name is uh, Harrison, his last name maybe. Uh, he was not very charismatic on stage, um, and they were getting absolutely destroyed in terms of like the style and the you know the the the, the type of marketing slogans from other companies like. Uh, Kazirai, very famously at the PlayStation event, uh, said there's a place where you can find the other video game consoles, and that happens to be in the in, in the rear view mirror. Like Oof. that is rough. That is that is very <laughs> that is a good burn, Mister Mister Kazirai. Um, so 2004 rolls in, and everybody's saying Nintendo's behind. Nintendo's just making kids games now. It's all about Sony. It's all about PlayStation. And now PlayStation is going to do, you know, the, PS- the PlayStation Portable. So they're going after the core Nintendo market. So the- this Nintendo event, everybody's sort of, you know, kind of down on whatever's going to happen. The event starts. You see a bunch of quick cutscenes. And this guy comes on stage. And without saying anything else, he just speaks his famous first lines that I think we can play on the show. My name is Reggie, I'm about kicking ass, I'm about taking names, and we're about making games. So the story goes that Reggie himself was not, was not convinced that this was the, the right approach to tackle this event and this sort of this uh, first introduction of his, of his person to, to the game press and to the Nintendo audience. Um, he didn't write the words himself. Uh, they were written by a strategist and a speechwriter for mm-hmm. Nintendo's uh, agency, public relations agency, and he, he actually needed to be convinced that this was the right approach. Um, and, well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's quite bold. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very bold. And years later, so I went back and checked, uh, you know, old interviews and old articles. Um, he kept, he, uh, he always mentioned in the interviews how he didn't want to do this, but still for, in, in the days immediately following the event, uh, everybody was talking about, you know, this nickname, the Reginator, uh, <laughs> that the, the internet gave him. And like, God, that's, he, that name has been around since his introduction. That's yes. wild. Yes. Uh, and also he kept saying in every interview, he kept mentioning how he, uh, his, uh, one of his kids uh, called him a few days after E3 to say, hey, dad, you're famous now. All my friends are talking about you. Okay, so, that's pretty that's, awesome. That's, that's pretty awesome. So comes on stage has that kind of introduction, and he doesn't care. It just it doesn't stop. He just says that, and more trailers start playing. And there are trailers of mature Nintendo video games, Metroid Prime Two Ecos, 
uh, it's a trailer, uh, Resident Evil 4, and like you're seeing actu an actual Resident Evil game from Capcom with zombies and killing and blood at a Nintendo event on the GameCube. Um, but what's interesting and what I want to discuss with you guys is despite so this bombastic appearance and introduction, uh, it looking straight into the audience, he says, but I want to tell you that, and I'm paraphrasing here, I want to tell you that we are still going to go after more types of gamers because it, it is not just about you, the experts, or the hardcore gamer. We at Nintendo want to try and in, be an inclusive company that caters to different types of gamers, even people who may not think of themselves as gamers yet. And, uh, you know... The, it was a, this interesting balance of we're showing you that we're back and we can play on the same, you know, on the same level as Sony and as Microsoft, but also we want to be different at the same time. And I, I, I want to hear from you guys if you what, what you think of this balance of we can be modern and hip, but we can also be Nintendo at the same time. Yeah, that's that's actually a really really great question. It's one of the most fundamentally important questions that you could ask about any business you know business has its customer base it's been around especially an established business like nintendo had a core audience and it had an approach and, a, and an appeal designed to reach that audience but of course the video games industry had been growing and has continued to grow and is now ridiculously large, larger than I think anyone even expected in uh, the early part of the 21st century. And so for them to take this approach has inherent risk. And the inherent risk is you could dilute your, your brand, you could weaken the message to your core audience, and in doing so, alienate them. I think the interesting thing with Reggie's approach was opening with games that you would not ordinarily expect to see on Nintendo. Because if he'd opened with the ordinary stuff and then shown the other stuff, there would have been uproar. Said, Hold on a minute, what are you doing? What are you doing to Nintendo? This is not the Nintendo that we know. Yeah. Have you sold out? Yeah, like not only are you going to get what you want, we're also going to do this other stuff. Exactly. So, But opening with that, and shocking people, suddenly, when, when people are shocked, they're more receptive. It's really interesting that the, the void needs to be filled. There's a psychological need to fill the, the chaos with some order. And so at that point, you step in and say, here's the stuff that you expect from us. Don't worry, it's coming. And guess what? There's more coming for other types of customers as well. It's a very powerful sequencing. I think that was the trick. That was a message. Whereas other companies, I won't name them, have had a much, um, much more traditional problem in reaching a larger audience. And that traditional problem is that once you found that audience, the demands of that audience are ever escalating and impossible to satisfy. Yes. So you so you have to narrow down and double down. And you know what that you know what that means, right? It's a power law. Suddenly you're investing 80% of your efforts into delivering 20% returns. And actually, it's not that. It's now more like 
four to 64, you know, it's the 80-20 or the 80-20, which is a game that very, very few people can win. And here's, here's where we've ended up. We've ended up with E3s where some of the players are showing more violence, more gore, more death, more characters, more graphics, more realism, and and yet have the games improved massively. In in a few isolated cases, you could argue that they have. And we've seen the results of those. And certainly in 2018, we saw some incredibly good games that didn't necessarily just go down that route. They had a little bit of nuance, but not before satisfying the desires of the core audience. Well, what did that do? That made those games much more expensive. Nintendo's genius, and I think a lot of us in the industry were very open about acknowledging it at the time, even if that didn't make us popular, was in recognizing that there is enormous value in creating games that don't cost a lot of money because you can reach an audience that still associates your brand with great content, but finds it somewhat intimidating because you've been developing and iterating for a while. This is a real problem with video games, right? You go into video games as a new person who hasn't played video games. You play a modern AAA game, and first of all, you have tutorials that are extremely patronizing for the really experienced player, but still bewildering for new players. How do you get those players in? Nintendo knew how. Nintendo knew that they had to make the controls more accessible, and Reggie knew they were coming with with the Wii, right? It was called the Revolution at the time. Yeah. And he knew that was coming, so he knew that that would be suitable for people who were intimidated by the controller. I mean, personally, I thought that was an absolute genius move. I've had um, issues with controllers for a long time, not personally, but in terms of accessibility, there's been this steady increase in the complexity of a controller it hasn't become easier to use it's become more complicated to use yes it's got more features now you have touch pads now you have analog buttons now you have analog sticks now you have two or three or four more buttons on the thing now we have pro controllers elite controllers 120 pound controllers but what what nintendo recognized was well we can do something that does away with all of that and introduce an entirely different type of technology that hey it's actually not that expensive to manufacture it was utter genius. And for them to approach that press conference in that sequence was the key in, first of all, shocking the core audience, then offering them, you know, it's like the whole, when you say, say to someone, do you want the good news or the bad news? People always want the bad news first mm-hmm. because they want to be relieved by the good news, right? It's a psychological thing. That's what they did. Here's the bad news. We're doing stuff like the other guys. And then, oh, hold on a minute. Oh, oh Nintendo's fine. And then but we're going further and we're going to capture a new audience. Suddenly you've got intrigue as well. Yeah. So you've got shock, you've got satisfaction, you've got intrigue. Genius. And only a man of his caliber would have been able to pull that off. Because I know how the executives work. I, w- I watched executives uh, very close up and they don't think like people like you and I. They just don't. Their, their thinking is on a different planet. They can see events play out a long, long way ahead. And they make a judgment call and you go, oh, hold on a minute. Why did he do that? Why did she do that? And then one year later, you realize the wisdom behind their approach. Mm -hmm. Or they're destroyed by the internet, (laughs) destroyed by the media, because they miss the obvious move. It's the way people criticize football coaches. Why didn't you bring on four or five substitutes? The other day you saw Jurgen Klopp bemoaning a 
uh, journalist question about the way Liverpool approached the game. Um, and his response was, and the reason this is relevant is going to be obvious in a second, his response was, this isn't a PlayStation game, you know. <laughs> As his response, you can't just bring on some attacking players and that's done. So like, people clearly don't understand how thinking works at that level. Reggie did, and Reggie had done it many times before. Uh, and and so I think that was what kick-started Nintendo's expansion into markets that other people weren't even touching. It was years before Sony entered that market. Phil Harrison had the foresight to see that there was a market there worth reaching even for PlayStation customers. And thus you saw Buzz, iToy, SingStar, that kind of thing. Much more accessible games oh, yeah. with much more mm -hmm. simplified controllers. Mm -hmm. That was his genius. And he, he made Sony an absolute ton of money. But that was following in in Reggie and Nintendo's footsteps. That's a very good point. Uh, the the you know the different stages of the event. I didn't think about that. Um, so of course, as you mentioned, um, during the course of the event, uh, and this one I want to call out, there was the DS introduction. Now, a couple of things stand out today. Um, Nintendo had already announced the name Nintendo DS, so everybody was talking about the dual screen, and it's so odd to look back on this event and say, see how during the presentation there was a video segment, like a sort of a interview segment with regular people in video game stores and the Nintendo person was asking them, hey, what do you think of the DS? And so you have this bunch of random people at an E3 presentation saying, oh, I think the DS will be a big deal. <laughs> it's like, why That's do you so have... Weird. It's so weird. Um, and so Reggie, of course, shows off a prototype of the DS, which I still maintain that it looks better than the final one, but you know it's an unpopular opinion. Um, and he says, but we haven't told you what DS also stands for. And this is one of those things that companies do. It's also developer system because we, you know, it's uh, okay. okay, fine, sure. It's also developer system, whatever. Uh, then he goes on to say one of his worst slash best from a certain perspective lines that he ever spoke at a presentation. And again, keep in mind, this was 2004. So early days of the mobile internet. And it says, and it's got Wi-Fi, so it's beyond online. It's no line. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Because you have no wires, so it's no line. Really? <laughs> that doesn't it's, make any sense. It's beyond online. It's no Who line. Who calls them lines? <laughs> it's not a thing. That's so bad. It's, uh, oh, it's, Reggie. Uh, it was very bad. Um, it's excused because it was 2004. So, you know, mm -hmm. we, can, we can accept it. Um, oh, I agree with you, by the way, about the DS prototype looking better than the shipping system. It was very cool with the black rectangle around it, with the black frame. I think it was really yep. cool. Um, yep. So, he basically he goes on to wrap up this segment of the DS saying, um, we want to... He was driving home the point that Nintendo was not just about hardcore gamers, was not just about what now we're making these mature games, but we want to expand. And this is something that would go on to define the entire Wii era. As Shade mentioned, it was known as the Project Revolution at the time. The, the famous, you know, the Blue Ocean strategy, the trying to go in an unexplored territory and trying to find new people that would, you know, it would work out pretty well for Nintendo in the next couple of years. But then... The event wrapped up with this major reveal 
of the Zelda Twilight Princess trailer, the first one. And of course, you know, Twilight Princess ended up, you know, the, the shipping game being controversial, not, not one of the best ever Zelda games, but that didn't matter at the time because that audience was hungry for a new, realistic, mature Zelda. And sure enough, this trailer was exactly what those people needed. Um, you know, epic mu- music starts playing, cinematic shots of... Uh, goblins riding horses with the sunset in the background. And then the camera pans over to Link, you know, riding Epona and um, running away from, I suppose, Hyrule Castle. And it was just perfect. The audience was going wild. Um, People started, uh, if you watch the video, people started screaming and getting up from their chairs and just yelling wildly at the screen. And then at the end, so they showed this realistic fighting style, these realistic graphics, and Link is all grown up, and there's Ganondorf again. Miyamoto comes up on stage and he has a sword and a shield for some reason and he's swinging his sword at the audience and it was just perfect and at that point those those people just started losing it Uh, and it was wild. You should watch the video because it was really something else. But then again, it was the point of this balance, this uh, alternating between we are the new Nintendo but we're also still Nintendo. We want to try something new. We're going to give you the DS. We're going to give you this new... Uh, generation of games and gamers, but also let us finish the event by showing you the mature Zelda because you were also upset about Wind Waker being, you know, um, cell shading with the cartoon style game. And now we're going to give you mature Link again. Uh, I think it was a perfect event. Not a bad introduction. Yeah. To a guy, right? Yeah. And finally, before we um, move on to the next segment of this episode, a uh, couple of things that I want to call out. Um, Kotaku has a very funny and amusing article about uh, all the times they asked Reggie about Mother 3. So Mother 3 would be the third game in the what is known in the West as the Earth, uh, Earthbound series. It's a very Japanese RPG, uh, you know, featuring Ness as the main character. And of course, Mother 3 came out in Japan, was never adapted to the West. Um, fan translations exist uh, if you want to play in, uh, you know, shady ways that are not completely legal. Uh, you, you can use a fan translation. They asked multiple times over almost a decade, really. And Kotaku has compiled all of these, all of these segments from the interviews. And uh, by the end, Reggie was basically threatening them to use his laser eyes. This is a meme from the time in a Nintendo Direct where Reggie was shooting lasers from his eyes at a journalist asking about Mother 3. So again, you know, always, <laughs> uh, always the... It was always up for the memes and the funny skits and, you know, uh, the Mother 3 thing became uh, one of the many, many Reggie memes. And also, I think it's interesting to quote and look back at the how Reggie reacted to the most recent failure, arguably, in Nintendo's history, the Wii U. He said, and he was very clear about it, that when they launched the Wii U, they missed, they just completely missed the opportunity to be clear about what the Wii U was. We talked about this many times. So many people thought the Wii U was like a peripheral to the Wii or like an extension of the Wii. It was not a brand new thing. Um, and he realized, you know, the sales, the sales were, uh, they were also hurt because we just were not good enough at communicating this, what it was. But he also said, 
the silver lining in the Wii U failure is that we heard from people and we learned that people wanted to have more of this tablet concept, of this idea of you're holding a console in your hand, but you can also dock it and play it on the TV. So in a way, it was the failure of the Wii U that eventually informed the Switch and the success that the Switch is today. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, maybe history will just reframe the Wii U as a R&D project for the Switch. Maybe. I mean, maybe. I'm 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 kind of I'm being facetious, but I also kind of mean it. <laughs> Especially when you look at like all of the good games that are just coming out on the Switch, all of the good Wii U games. Like it was effectively they were just training for a few years until they came up with what that console should have actually been. Yeah, which is R&D in public. <laughs> yeah, but they're still, they're still benefiting from the work, right? Like, Mario Kart Deluxe sold better, on, you know, every game that they have brought out on the Switch is sold better than it ever did on the Wii U. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, hilarious, really, to look at it that way. All right, I want to uh, kind of move on a little bit here to talk about being a leader in general in the gaming industry, as as Reggie seems to have been, and kind of to to get Shahid's thoughts on what that means. Uh, but before we do, let me thank our second sponsor for this episode, and that is Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace because they will let you easily create a website for your next idea. With a unique domain name right available there to you for you to grab and give it that brand you're looking for. With the ability to customize award-winning templates and so much more, they are the all-in-one platform that will let you put your next project online. Squarespace has 24-7 customer support, so they're there right when you need them in case you have any issues at all. And you never have to worry about installing or patching or upgrading with Squarespace. They take care of all of that stuff for you so you don't have to. It's super simple to build websites with Squarespace. I've been doing it for years because of that. I know how to build a blog or a portfolio or an online store because they make it so simple to do so. Uh, Squarespace's tools are incredible and they're very customizable. And I've been a big fan of them for years because of this. You can sign up today for a free trial by going to squarespace.com slash remaster. And their plans start at just $12 a month. So when you're done with the trial and you want to launch it out to the world, you need to grab one of those plans. But you can get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain by using the offer code remaster at checkout. That is squarespace.com slash remaster. And the code remaster for 10% off your first purchase. So thanks to Squarespace for their continued support of this show. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So, Shahid, in your opinion, what are like the types of people in video gaming that leave a lasting impact? Is that too big a question? Well, yes, yeah, it's, it's a question of what makes somebody a success. Um, I wouldn't say it's too big a question. It depends how deeply you want to cover it. <laughs> and um, we we could go on about this for several thousand books. Uh, I certainly read, I would say, in the order of several hundred books on business leadership uh, in an attempt to try and understand what it is that makes somebody a leader in their field. And I've seen some of these people and worked with some of these people up close and hope to try and pick up what lessons I can. But of course, it depends on your own personal development as to yeah. whether you're a judge of a leader. But there are two categories here, aren't there? There's who you might call a leader and who you might call a legend. Yes. And although it's demonstrably easier to agree on 
who a leader is, it's much, much harder to determine from pure facts what separates a legend from a leader. What is it that allows people to make that step? Now, we could do that in any industry, but this is a podcast about video games. So I thought it might be an idea to examine some of the types of people who I personally consider to be legends of the industry and then pick out some of the common factors because there are some trends. I mean, these people all have in common their uncanny ability to judge the market and get it right more often than not. They have an okay. uncanny and they have an uncanny ability to spot opportunities when nobody else has seen them. So Nintendo, for example, with the revolution which became the Wii, that was one hell of an opportunity. The iPhone, for example, outside of video games, but also crossing over eventually into video games, was one of those, one of those uh, opportunities. You could argue that people who jumped onto that bandwagon late in the video games world kind of missed the point. So, for example, PSP had a more difficult ride, whereas the DS did not. Did that make either of the creators, neither of those, um, neither of those devices ended up making their creators legends? So, what else is there to it? I think we talk about individuals. Something that's come through certainly in the last 10 to 15 years, in the internet era, is accessibility. You'll find that those legends who are not easy to reach, who are not in the public eye, you could call them legends if you're in the industry and you know them. For me, for example, Jim Ryan is a legend. But even in the wider industry and in uh, the wider world, he's not seen as a legend. He's seen as a great business leader. Well, I mean, that could change for him, though. It could. It could. Because he just took over the top job, didn't he, Jim Ryan? That's right. Yeah. Yep. He's taken over the top job. Yeah, but I mean... Previous remaster guest, Jim Ryan, head <laughs> of Sony true. PlayStation. Friend, friend uh, of the show. Friend really. of the show, the head of Sony PlayStation, Jim Ryan. <laughs> I'll never get a job at Sony again now. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about legends. Because Jim Ryan is, for me, a really great leader. Uh, for me personally, a legend, but not a legend outside why is that? Here are the things. I think people have to come across as human. If they have redemption stories, you know, people who, who messed up really big and then owned up, shaped up, and shipped, those people get acknowledged as legends. Who, for example, fits into that category? Well, Reggie does, because Reggie made some mistakes. Mm -hmm. But you know what? They weren't catastrophic. Who made a catastrophic mistake? Ken Kutaragi with a PS3. However, he will always be seen as a legend. So the fact that you've made a catastrophic mistake or even an irrecoverable mistake doesn't necessarily mean you're not a legend. But people do seem to love the redemption stories, you know, how things got turned around. Look at Phil Spencer at Xbox. He completely changed the image of Xbox within a generation. It's the same with Andy House at PlayStation. Although he'd been around there forever, he completely transformed the image. So I would classify him as a legend. The other thing legends do is they capture the zeitgeist and they do it more than once. There are very, very few people 
who are who have the combination of skill and luck and judgment to get that right. And of course, there's always an element of luck. You could say something that is truly profound, and then the public will destroy you. And then two years later, somebody else says exactly the same thing, and the public will love you. I'll give you an example. Google Glass. Bit of a disaster, right? The timing was wrong. If Apple come out with AR glasses now, do you think people will be called creepy for wearing them? I don't think so. Mm. So timing, capturing the zeitgeist is absolutely essential. And this has been Apple skill. Sorry to keep banging on about Apple, but you know my love affair with them. And they do do games. But the reason they have been so incredibly successful and why so many people, apart from uh, our beloved Steve Jobs, have achieved legend status within Apple is because they were able to capture the zeitgeist, even though they were not necessarily at the head of the technological curve. So the pioneers are not always legends. You know, the pioneers of the guys and, and the girls who are sadly less acknowledged with the arrows in their back. And some of these people will never be known, but the ones who came in the second wave and came up with a product that better captured the zeitgeist are the ones who become legends. And the other thing that helps people in the video games industry achieve legendary status, in my opinion, is the consistent development of absolutely top-rate product. So I'm going to give you a quote here. And tell me if you can um, remember, I'm sure you can, who this was. We want consumers to think to themselves, I will work more hours to buy one. We want people to feel that they want it irrespective of anything else. Mm. Do we win something, if we guess correctly? Uh, a, a, a visit to the Vita Manufacturing Factory? Okay. <laughs> um, this was Henry Ford. <laughs> <laughs> it's Ken Kutaragi. Oh, <laughs> so much easier. <laughs> <off. laughs> it's Ken Kutaragi um, about the PS3. Huh. Yeah. So that sounds awful, doesn't it? I'll work more hours to buy one. But actually, it's not that bad a thing to say. You just shouldn't say it publicly. <laughs> because what are you saying? You're selling a device for 600 bucks or 600 quid in the UK. That's a lot of money for a console. And we're talking about 2006, 2007. More hours to buy one? Seriously? Yeah, it sounds terrible. You, you say, it sounds awful, doesn't it? Except that that is actually the case for just about every modern gadget. Look, why, why does an idiot like me spend £1,000, more than that, on an iPhone 10? Didn't I have to work more hours to buy one? Of course I did. But was Tim Cook saying, we think you're going to love this so much, you're going to kill yourself to buy it? No, he didn't. He pushed the benefits of the device. And so judging what your, what your audience wants and how they want to hear about it is something that legends do time and time again. Sometimes they mess up. Sometimes they overreach. Good example, Pete Molyneux. Pete Molyneux's overreached time and time again. But is he a legend? Yes. Of course he is, because he's delivered creatively game after game after game. He's innovated game after game after game. And guess what? He's still making games today. And he can be forgiven for Spore. Of course. <laughs> I'll never, Hold on a I will never personally forgive him, but people at large uh, can forgive him for Spore. No, Spore was Will Wright. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, Who is also a legend. 
Yes, mm-hmm. and he can definitely yeah. be forgiven. Yeah, for Mike sport. has a story with Spore. <laughs> it's just like a long <laughs> history with me in that game. But yeah, yeah, uh, you make a good point. This is an easier one for you guys. I've I've heard many people say our competitive systems are just as powerful as a PS3. That simply is not true. No other next generation entertainment system pushes the envelope on advanced technology like PS3. Is that Shuhei? Kazirai. Ah, yeah. Nice. Kazirai, who turned into nice. a meme and one of the greats. But this is When such... do we leave for the manufacturing plant? <laughs> <laughs> Where's oh, my ticket? Sorry, didn't I tell you? It was closed. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty closed up at this point, my friend. <sighs> they stopped well. manufacturing the Vita, didn't they? So mm-hmm. um, that was a trick question. But yeah, that was Kazirai, who's, who basically forgot the most important... Um, and well, not the most important, but the simplest rule in marketing: you sell the benefits, you don't sell the features. And f- and for them, power was a feature. And the reason it was a feature is because they just spent two billion dollars developing the chip behind the PS3, and so of course they had to push the technology. I remember that. Of course, that chip, you had to talk man. about all of that. Yeah, I remember all the stories of like, oh, this is going to power the military. This is going to yes, be. Yes, I like, remember yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the interesting thing is. That it that architecture, the cell architecture, the parallel architecture of eight very simple chips, is the foundation for all graphics cards today. Huh. All graphics cards use highly parallelized um, cores, extremely tight with extremely small but very efficient instruction sets that operate on millions of pixels in parallel every single frame. That's where the industry has gone. The point is not that the technology was great, but the point was that they misunderstood who their audience was. Their yes. audience had been buying the PS2 at 150 quid a pop, then sometime, then later down to 100 quid a pop. And here they are with a machine that costs 600 pounds. I mean, you could even also argue that? like the, the audience being the developers as well, right? Like they kind of misunderstood the amount of time and effort that a lot of these companies had to be able to create games to fully take advantage of the architecture because that completely. seemed like that was a problem for them too. Completely. That's the most important point. And what is the point in having all that technology if it cannot be expressed in a form that the customers can enjoy, mm-hmm. right? So, But the point, the point here is not so much that Kaz messed up. The point is there's a redemption story right there from a man who was defending one of the biggest mistakes in Sony's history to a man who completely transformed Sony into a powerhouse again. Better, stronger, bigger than ever before. Do you think that there is a link to like achieving legendary status means you have to have made swings so big that you will make huge misses? No. Okay. It's not essential, but it does help. And it does happen a lot, but it's not essential. It does happen a lot, but it's not essential. Some people are lucky. Some people will swing and swing and swing, and then they'll quit. Right. But other people, I mean, the people. I, I think you can go beyond legend. You can go beyond legend, and you can become an icon. Mm-hmm. Steve Jobs was an icon, right? Steve Jobs made mistakes. Who remembers the mistakes? I don't. Mm. All I remember is the effect that man has had on my life and continues to have to this day. To this day. The anniversary of his death upsets me, saddens me, always pops up with a, uh, I get a, you know, on this day, mm-hmm. reminder on my day one diary. And every, whenever I check that and it's Steve Jobs' anniversary of his death, it makes me feel sad because he was an icon. Because I don't remember his weaknesses. I don't remember his failings. And my God, he had lots of those. 
So he went beyond legend to icon, whereas I think with legends, when they pass away, yeah, you feel sad, but you don't feel that that pulling on your soul in the same way that you do with icons. Icons are very, very few and far between. Let's not talk about icons, because I don't think Reggie has achieved icon status. Reggie, though, is definitely a legend. So here's the thing. I mean, going back to Reggie, he managed to preside over a series of spectacular wins with only a few missteps. And here's the important thing. Those missteps didn't threaten Nintendo existentially. Yes. Yeah? So that's what he did. So he made mistakes, but he's able to cover up for them. And here's the other thing. He was able to style it out in a way that was forgivable because he was also self-effacing. And that's another quality of legends is that at the right time, when the damage is passed, they're able to be self-effacing about previous failures. Not necessarily making making them into um, poverty, uh, you know, failure porn, but certainly they're able to gloss over them with a shrug and a laugh. So that that's why you know people love in all hero stories they love the story of redemption, but. People who are legends are also visionary, and that's why they capture the zeitgeist, because they can see it coming. Because remember, these products that they create, or they are at the helm of the companies who create them, they're spotting this two, three, four, five years ahead of time. PS4 was was in development for several years before it came out, and before it delivered to, I guess, the kind of template that um, Nintendo used. And going back to Reggie, one of the things I love about Reggie is he very openly declared his um, deep respect for one of my uh, favorite business thinkers. I guess in the history of the Western world, Clayton Christensen. I don't know if you know his book, The Innovator's Mm -hmm. Dilemma. It's an absolute classic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's an absolute classic. And if you haven't read it at a large company, your large company's going out of business, right? So that's a book I drew on. Um, time and time again when I was building strategic content because I failed time and time and time and again before that. And reading this made it very, very clear to me what needed to be done. Now, he, he uh, pulls up a specific quote that I love because it addresses why, exactly why, the we became a success. Do you mind if I quickly read this out? Please do. So Christensen said, first, how do you satisfy the core I think he's talking about customer base, while still expanding appeal. And second, how do you leverage your strengths against entirely untapped audiences to the so-called blue oceans in popular marketing speak? Provide a new product that actually underperforms on an established industry metric for progress and substitute an alternative that typically is smaller, less expensive, and easier to use. Initially, the core of any industry will scoff. But if the product is right, enough new users will be attracted to form an alternative definition for progress. I mean, that, oh, if look, that it's doesn't the Nintendo send Wii. shivers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't send shivers down your spine. Yeah. I don't know what will. And for me, that Reggie knew about the innovator's dilemma while he was there having worked on the GameCube, right? That product that was kind of trying to make that technological leap with a power PC processor didn't quite pull it off, even though in some respects it was initially more powerful than the PS2. 
right? It was a really beautiful machine. I thought I loved the GameCube. I don't know what. A really innovative yeah. game system. It's fantastic. The, the, you know, the small discs and its ability to be so small, you know, the fact that you could, in a weird way, have it as like this hybrid portable machine by putting a little screen on top of it like yeah. I used to play it. Like it was a genuinely fantastic machine with one of the, if one of, if not the best game controller ever made. Like, the best controller ever made. Yes. Yeah. And, and the Game Boy Advance integration, which was kind of weird at the time, but sort of, you know, it it predated uh, what we're doing today with two screens, you know, all of these, uh, you know, the DS and in a way the Wii U and the idea of mm -hmm. you can play portable, you can play on the TV and you can have local multiplayer from different points of view. It was really ahead of its time. And people made fun of the cables and the crazy setup, but the core of the idea was, uh, you know, was really ahead of, uh, ahead of the curve, I think. But do you see now how an innovator could come into the space of, drawing a parallel here, could come into the space of mobile phones and take phones, smartphones that is, in a direction that the likes of Apple and Samsung are abandoning. So here we have manufacturers who are shipping ever more complex technology that's getting harder and harder to use. Don't know about you, but I still haven't worked out how to do all the swipes and what they do and everything. And I know, <laughs> I know technology. Come on. I should be able to hit the control center every time, and I don't. Sometimes hit notifications when I swipe. So I'm an accomplished and experienced user. Most people are not, and they're going to have difficulties getting the most out of these devices. But someone steps in, like OnePlus, but maybe it's someone else because I don't think OnePlus is a true innovator here. OnePlus is a copier and comes up with a device at less than half the price, but does something for a new audience that is appealing. They'll capture the zeitgeist and they could potentially move into this space. I don't think Apple will fall for that because I think Apple are too smart. They do know their audience. It is an absolutely massive audience. You, you can't exactly complain uh, about the performance of a company that hit one trillion um in in worth uh before anybody else can you so i know we'll we'll see they they probably got a long way to go before they fall off a cliff um but that approach by christensen for me that sent shivers up my spine when i read that because i didn't know that reggie had drawn on that and if you think about it the nintendo ds used that approach too because they could have gone down the increasingly complex technology route they could have made something more expensive they could have made a PSP, but they didn't. They made a Nintendo DS. I don't think they did that deliberately. I think that was the, the limit of their ability. It was for them a major step forward from uh, the Game Boy, which I still think is one of the greatest devices ever made in any category of any technology. The Game Boy stands out as an absolutely groundbreaking work of genius, perfectly sized, perfectly packaged, perfectly uh, placed in terms of its power, uh, and performance and battery usage and games. Just fantastic. Sorry about banging on about the Game Boy. I wasn't planning on doing that sidetrack. But, you know, with Sony, <laughs> you know, with Sony look, at, look at them. After PS3, they learned their lesson. And what did they go for with the PS4? They didn't go for a PS3 Plus. They didn't go for a machine that had quadruple cells. No, they went for a very simplified architecture and they put it out at a price. I was there in the meetings when we were talking about how we were going to get that price. And, you know, just before it was about to come out, it was going to have the camera. And literally weeks before, it's like, no, we have to get the price down. This price isn't going to work. And this is a top management doing this. You know, I had nothing to do with this. I was just witness to it. 
And I go, please don't include the camera. Please don't include the camera. They didn't include the camera. They were able to put it out at a miracle price point. So huh. they they were they launched it uh, at what about half the price of the PS3 launch price with a significantly simpler architecture, simpler in terms of much much easier to program. And here's the other thing: they increased the RAM. So the compromise they made at the last minute was to increase the RAM and to remove the camera, and that's what allowed them to bring the price down. It wasn't easy. I'm sure there was uh, a lot of nail-biting and uh, there were complex discussions about operations and technology that took a while. Point being, they did something that was focused. They did it for um, their core audience who they had begun to lose at the beginning of PS3 and got back at the end of PS3, and that's why they succeeded. And if you look at the approach of Phil Spencer, what did he do? He went back to the core audience again. This is not the same as what Nintendo did. Nintendo did two things. So, and, and of course, Reggie presided over a lot of this. What they did was they presented a device that was not only cheaper and simpler, but also engaged a wider audience. PlayStation and Xbox haven't done that. They just doubled down on the core audience. And that's why I call console devices devices for a niche audience, which sounds crazy given how much money these guys make. But compare it to the amount that, I mean, if you look at bang for the buck, Supercell, 100, 100 or so people in that company making billions a second or whatever <laughs> yeah. ludicrous amount it is, right? That is a mass market for video games, my friends. Not PlayStation, not Microsoft, and to some extent, not even Nintendo. Though having said that, Nintendo did save themselves by going really broad. And yeah, we in the industry all knew, by the way, that Nintendo was sitting on the biggest pile of cash you could possibly imagine. Why? Because they'd been fiscally prudent. They'd never created hardware that was way beyond what they could create. They always created the greatest games on the planet. Whoops, did I just say that? I don't know. They need to retire Mario. Including Mario. <laughs> but that's why the Wii U wasn't successful, right? The Wii U wasn't successful because it's the wrong concept at the wrong time. Too complicated for customers to understand. Too fiddly to get the best out of. Had they chosen to use Christensen's teachings and gone back to the drawing board, it would have been very, very different. And they did for the Switch. They simplified. They made the product proposition a lot easier to understand. They expanded the audience. Yeah, they talked about dozens of players. So you've got to give a lot of credit to Reggie for that. That's what makes him a legend. Should we talk about some other legends? Yes. Miyamoto. Why was he a legend? Because he's created games that have sold tens of millions of units uh, time and time again that have touched the lives of generations. I don't think we even need to have a discussion uh, about Miyamoto. Do we need to have a discussion about Miyamoto? We no, don't, we do don't. we? I mean, no, he's we don't. I mean, he says it himself and he continues to do it, which is the funny yeah. thing. It's like it's just a thing that doesn't seem like it has an end. So remember, these are my candidates. So feel free to say uh, yay or nay when I call these people out. Marcus Person. Hmm. Now, see, it's a tricky one because... Legends can fall, remember? Yeah, I mean, and they don't have to be good people, I suppose. No, no. I mean, if, we, if we're like, I just wanted to establish that, right? That they don't have to be good people because if you look no, at just from no. a creative aspect, from a from what that person has added to the gaming, it, what gaming is, is very, very important, but has also added things culturally that are not so much. Absolutely. I mean, here, here's the thing. I've got to make absolutely clear. None of my votes for 
the category of legend are votes for the human being behind them because i don't yes. know some of these people yeah. i don't know notch so um but i do know he said some pretty uh, let, let's be careful here he said some pretty controversial things that i don't think any of us agree with yeah so he said some pretty yes. awful things <laughs> okay you you know I, I i agree i mean but having said that he is the creator of minecraft yeah yes will wright can we agree that he's a legend yes yeah. sid meyer yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> right so w what do all of these people have in common creative output yeah that's so true. all they had to do to become legends was to create either one or two things that had a profound effect on society as a whole or a series of games that when accumulated had that effect and i think some of these people pulled them off with one like notch um some people were able to do it time and time again, like Will Wright, Sid Meier, Miyamoto, obviously. Molyneux, to some extent, I would say, from my perspective, although I consider Molyneux to be a creative genius and a legend, I think Meyer and Wright are in a slightly higher category. And I think uh, Miyamoto is right at the very top when it comes to creative output. Um, and then I have another category of legends. And let's go through these again. You'll find a contentious offering in this. But first of all, John Carmack? Yeah. Yeah. I like that he's continued. He kind of came back. He's got like a second wing going for him now, right? Working on VR yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I mean, he's, as, as far as we can all tell, he is practically the founder of 3D graphics and video games. Mm -hmm. I know loads of other people have done it. Um, I've always argued that Ultima Underworld beat Doom to the Punch with a much better system, albeit on a smaller screen. But it doesn't matter. What matters is legendary status is not de decided by legends. It's not decided by uh, old industry farts like me. It's decided by the people. And the people say Carmack is a father of 3D. So, you know, you look, you look at the code he's written. It's, he's basically written templates for code that's been used by generations of programmers. People follow in his footsteps. He's still absolutely incredible today. Second candidate, Palmer Lucky. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yes. Yeah. See, see above for uh, Marcus Pearson. <laughs> so you see, a, a legend for me can be a dark legend too. So without without saying anything about his predilection for Donald Trump, he basically restarted VR single handedly. Yeah. I say single handedly. Yeah. He he got some of the greatest minds in the world. <laughs> including, of course, uh, the one and only John Carmack, but other geniuses too. Like for me, an, an internal industry legend is Michael Labrash, who brought texture mapping to the masses back in the day. He used to describe everything in technical articles in Dr. Dobbs' journal and elsewhere. Absolute genius. He's there as well. So, okay, we went le less said about uh, Mr. Lucky the Better, but Tim Sweeney. Tim Sweeney. So. Tim Sweeney, founder of Epic. See, I'm yeah. not uh, sure he's yes. a legend yet. Yes, yes. I think he is very close to being a legend. But I mean, you know, he's co-founder of the company that's made Fortnite, but also the creators of Unreal Engine, and mm -hmm. now building the Epic Store. I don't think, if he isn't a legend already, and I think he is. I would say that there are some people that, that you wouldn't, if he retired today, you would think of him as a legend. 
but he's still active. So it, it kind of can, can change your feelings about it. Right. Where it's like, well, he's still the guy doing the thing and like, he's still making his history, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But so is Carmack. Well, yeah. Maybe to a lesser extent, maybe. Yeah. I, I think some people would think his best, best days are behind him. It kind of felt like he was already done, but it'll come back. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Which is a different kind of... So, like, we'd already so kind of considered So, legendary status him. already achieved, right? Yeah, exactly. Where, yeah, 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 where yeah. Sweeney has continued to, to keep working. Okay, fair enough. So, I'm going to quickly run through some corporate legends. Again, just yay or nay is absolutely fine. Kazuhirai? Yeah. Hiroshi Yamauchi? Mm, I'm not familiar yes, with the name. Uh, the previous president of Nintendo. Oh, oh. <laughs> yes. Lucky, yeah. Interesting. So these are my corporate legends. Um, so uh, Yamauchi-san basically turned Nintendo from a car trading company into a video games company. Yeah. And presided over them forever. But very few people know his name, except industry people. And yet he practically invented the console industry without ever loving video games. Mm-hmm. So that, that I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Another uh, corporate legend, Chris Deering. I don't know this one. Okay, so Chris Deering was at the helm of uh, PlayStation Europe when it started and was responsible for some of the, I, I guess, some of the most innovative uh, marketing that the industry had ever seen and reaching an audience that had never been reached before. But again, so you see these corporate legends are not as widely known. Uh, Andrew House. Yeah, of course, you know, Andy mm-hmm. House, mm-hmm. Uh, Phil Spencer. I'm not sure he's quite a legend yet. In my mind, he's a legend, but I don't think in the wider world, he's quite a legend. Perhaps in the gaming circles, he's seen as an industry leader. But I think what he did at Xbox in such a short space of time is truly remarkable. I wouldn't put him in the top echelon. It's a similar thing that like he will, when his time is done, yeah, he yeah. will be looked back on um, like extremely fondly. Like I really like the guy right like i think that he has a as a, like a great way about him and, and i kind of i like what has happened to xbox under his control over the last few years mm. but his story's not written yet that's a good point mike no especially because they're going through a troubling time right now you know like they come i think they're starting to come out of it but things haven't been great for them recently right and of course uh, previous guest on Remaster, <laughs> friend, of friend of the show, <laughs> Shuhei Yoshida. Yeah. I would say he's, I mean, he's more than the corporate legend, isn't he? It was very hard to categorize him. He's approaching, yeah, I think, like, uh, he's approaching icon territory, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But he's, like, I, mm. I would say, like, Yoshida Sam reminds me of Reggie and that he's very involved in the community and yep. is, it, and that kind of puts him at that that state as i think faster than some other people were as well as being like a, a an interesting figure in the kind of in the as you say like in the corporate space he's also very involved as a gamer and i think that that can really elevate somebody more than the other people that you've mentioned right like spencer is is he seems quite focused but i kind of get a feeling for him that it, some of it feels a little bit disingenuous some of the stuff that he talks about with games um, it, maybe it's just his presentation style is a little bit more brash than than I'm used to, but Yoshida-san feels like a gamer. You know, like he very frequently talks about like Switch games and stuff, right? Like he has that thing about him, and I'm obviously extremely biased by the fact that he is a, also a friend of the show, a previous uh, guest on uh, Remaster. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, uh, let me tell you two very quick stories about Phil Spencer and Yoshida-san. Phil Spencer, somebody I know very well, had a meeting with Phil. And they were ushered into the room. And he was there with a big telly playing a game, just having a blast. And it was, uh, and he apologized immediately. So look, I nearly finished. I'll be with you in a second. And it wasn't staged. He was clearly good at this game. So this is an executive having a meeting with somebody else and they're sitting there playing game. I guarantee you that would not happen with 90% of executives. Oh, they sure. would not be playing video games, right? Yoshida-san, uh, Gamescom 2013, he was sitting in the rehearsal sessions. And after I rehearsed my talk for maybe the second or third time, I went down, he, um, he looked up at me, smiled. I walked over, sat down next to him. Guess what he was doing? He's playing Velocity 2X on his Vita. <laughs> nice that's awesome he was playing an early build and he gave feedback on it as well and uh we visited at some point we visited future lab in brighton together and when they sat down he gave them a long list of feedback this is not quite right you should do this you should do that I mean, he's I, where does he find the time from where does he find the time from and the thing is he's always on the go he's always working and yet he's always smiling and his attitude is impeccable. I've never seen him in a bad mood. And yet the guy is so shrewd. Here's the other thing. He's so relaxed about it too. Another one of my uh, favorite memories is um, GDC 2014, maybe. Um, he was relaxing in the bar after a uh, long, hard day of pounding the, the pavement. Um, saw me. Um, and we sat down. Actually, no, we walked back from GDC together. We walked back to the hotel and we had, um, you know, we had a drink in the bar. I don't drink, but I had a Diet Coke um, for about an hour. Think about that. The amount, that is a lot of time at the end of the day. Yeah. It's just me and him chatting. The guy is genuine. He is informed. He is reachable. Um, and his stewardship of the creative output of worldwide studios has been unimpeachable the quality of the games that have come out of worldwide studios under his stewardship my god they are magnificent and he's played them all and he's given feedback on them all and people love him so for me he's i would put him right up there at the very top alongside kazurai and hiroshi yamachi-san yeah i think so and finally, I want to talk about people who've transcended all of these categories. And I'm not going to make judgment on the characters, so most are good. And I would say Mark Cerny, Nolan Bushnell, and Gabe Newell have transcended all of the categories, despite having long, yep. illustrious backgrounds in other areas. So we won't touch on those too long. But I'll tell you what, here's the thing I really wanted to talk about. What do you notice about the list I've just read out from? This is my list. They're all men. Yes. That's got to change. Yes. So I also have a list of women in the industry who, who are my personal legends and who I'm really cross don't get as much airtime as the dudes. The other thing about that list, by the way, which you might have noticed, is that all the names, are, uh, sorry, all the people are either Caucasians or Japanese. Mm -hmm. True. Yeah? Yes. And, and that is a problem. Why do we not have other people in the list of legends this is my own list 
you know, I, I point the finger at myself. It's because they're not visible enough and they need to be made more visible because people have made contributions. Let me very quickly tell you about some of the people, some of the uh, ladies who I think are absolute legends for, for lots of reasons, but not least because they have to put up with so much nonsense in having to achieve the heights they've achieved. Siobhan Reddy, who's the CEO of Media Molecule. Do I need to say anything about nope. no. <laughs> about that? I don't, right? Yeah, it speaks um, for itself. Amy, yeah, exactly. Uh, Amy Hennig, one of my favorite people, uh, one of my biggest inspirations in video games. Uh, um, designer on Jack and Daxter on Uncharted. Uncharted! Wow. Why okay. do we not know more about Amy? I mean, you know, she's an absolute legend. Robin Hunica, of course, made Journey. Uh, hello. <laughs> you know, yes, within the industry, she is very widely respected, well-known, well-appreciated, senior figurehead. But outside, not enough projection. Uh, one, of, one of my dearest friends, Heather Kelly, who behind the scenes is absolutely everywhere, in every part of the world, helping people make games. I mean, I, I can't talk about some of the places she's been, put herself un in danger to help people less privileged to make games, um, to design games herself, to teach game design. She's an absolute genius. And, you know, I'm, I'm in awe of her ability and her empathy and her, um, her work ethic. Brenda Romero, who of course has been acknowledged, but come on, she's she's been an award-winning designer since before I started in video games, not started commercially in 1982. Well, she's been uh, kicking <clears throat> and taking names since before then. Uh, Kim Swift, designer of Portal and Left 4 Dead. Portal's one of the most influential games of all time. I mean, yes, some people know about Kim, but not enough. Uh, Roberta Williams, who, of course, decades ago was a co-founder of Sierra Online. Some mm. of the <laughs> best adventures ever made were by Sierra. Jade Raymond, an absolute genius who founded Ubisoft Toronto. I mean, does it get much bigger than that? Mm. Uh, Bree Code, who, uh, Bree Code for me is one of the greatest, not, not just one of the greatest games programmers in video games in the world, but also one of the best communicators and writers that I've ever come across. Some of the stuff that um, she has written, I I'm literally pounding the table going, yes, yes, when I read her stuff. But she was previously the lead AI programmer at Ubisoft. And at one point, she led a team of 60 AI programmers. Wow. And of course, yeah, and, and of course, Rihanna Pratchett, who's been a writer on tons of games and who is a bit more known, but you know, could, uh, in my opinion, should, should be more known. Here's the thing. My lists are not complete. They're very incomplete. There are loads of other people I could list both on, on the male and the female side. But my point here is when we look at legends in the video games industry, where is the diversity? I do not see any brown or black faces anywhere. And I see very few women. And that, I don't know how it's going to change. You know, even if you if you do something simple like Google for uh, women figures in the video games industry, get a whole bunch of unrelated nonsense to do with characters in video games, but not leaders. And that's got to change. It's got to change. <laughs>